So listen and meditate on God's holy word. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords, lords of the Philistines were passing by on hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Ashek, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Ashish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the hands of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck him down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Ashish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me to, uh, in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from this day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Ashish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Thanks, Rich. Good morning, everybody. Happy hurricane. We don't get these that often, so you've got to celebrate while you can. Um, let's go ahead and start with prayer. Uh, Lord, of all the words in the Bible that um, describe who you are, the one that's repeated most often is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Angels repeat that in heaven because the mere word holy can't contain your holiness, can't express it, so it has to be repeated. Lord, what a glorious thought to think of our holy God, utterly other, very unlike us, and yet we're made in his image. And so, Lord, you can be holy but not distant, holy but not alien, holy but not foreign. So thank you for your holiness. Thank you for that attribute that you have communicated to us. You've explained yourself as holy. What a beautiful thought. And, uh, Father, as we hear the rain falling on the building, I want to pray this morning for um, the many people who will be affected by uh, flash floods and this heavy downpour, this sudden heavy downpour. Lord, in my heart, I'm grateful that we receive it so we can fill those aquifers and, and um, get past the, uh, the drought that we faced for such a long time. But, Lord, at the same time, I know it endangers people. So uh, thank you for this gift, and we pray for people to take care and, and be cautious and for our emergency services to respond and, and uh, for us to be able to uh, make it through the storm. 
and uh, know that it was a rain that is a gift from you as well. So thank you for that. Father, we want to pray for our friends, the Racies, as this is their last Sunday with us, and they're going to be uh, driving potentially through some of this rain. Uh, Lord, would you clear a lane before them on the freeway as they go and, and get them safely to Phoenix and uh, on to Ohio, where your, their next adventure awaits. And Lord, what is it that you've got for them? We, we can't wait to hear the stories. But uh, bless them as they go and, uh, and remain good to them. Remind them of your goodness uh, in the journey and in the arrival. And uh, Father, I pray again for Joanne Harris, or Joanne Harris, Joanne Sadler, as uh, she's been moved again to assisted care, but a, a better facility. And uh, she seemed to be pretty frustrated that she didn't get to stay. But Lord, you know what's going on, and you're moving her according to your plan. So. I pray that the new facility would help her to recuperate, get her through um, physical therapy and, and back on her feet. And thank you for the way you've provided for her so far. Continue to bless and heal her, we pray. And now, Lord, uh, we pray as we turn to your word that you would show us what it is that we need to hear from you today. What is it that is in this story that we need to learn from? What will lead us to trust Jesus more? So be with us in the, in the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Um, so my friend... Uh, Bob Kemple is not here, so I can talk about him. And I know he's not on Zoom. Hi, all the live streamers. But he recently gave me this book. It's called uh, Herman the German. And uh, it, it sounds like a funny name, but uh, it's an incredible story. And I'm not going to try to tell the whole story because it's just too incredible. The subtitle is Just Lucky, I guess. And so it's a story of a, a man who was born into a secular, non-practicing Jewish family in Germany just before the Second World War. And so he, he's growing up and he wants to go to this one school, but his dad sends him to be an apprentice under this mechanic, the best automobile mechanic in the area, just well known. And so he labored under him and learned some skills. Then he went to a technical college and then he applied for a job with a Canadian or a, a Chinese um, air transport company. And they bought all, they paid for all of his visas, they bought all of his airfare, they got accommodations for him the whole way. And so just before the beginning of World War II, he hopped on a transit and it took him, you know, days to get there, but he went to China and the company was gone. So what's he going to do? The British confiscated his uh, passport at the beginning of the war and they were going to send him to a holding facility. And he just happened to go into one building just at the right moment, just when the right person was coming out the door, and they offered him a job. So the man's story goes like that, just at the right time, at the right time, at the right time. He was in China. He was with the Flying Tigers. The Flying Tigers were an American mercenary uh, air unit until America got involved in the war, and then they were commissioned and became the, uh, uh, a fighter wing. So he was working there as a civilian, and then he was enlisted into the Air Force, and then he was promoted to a master sergeant in one shot. And he wound up with an a, a, a enlistment that said he could not ever set foot in the United States. And he was a German national still. So we're fighting Germany, and we have a German national in our, in our military. He's at the right place at the right time. They captured a bunch of downed Japanese zeros. And so his commander said, I want you to go put those together and make me a zero that will fly. So he built the first captured Japanese zero so we could analyze how to fight it. And then when it came time for that war to wrap up, he was given a, a, a citizenship by an act of Congress. His name is in an act of Congress that says he is now an American citizen. And then he, enters, he, he comes to the United States, winds up marrying a woman, the end of the war, the war was all over. They bought a used Jeep and they drove across Asia. There were no maps. They had maps with no roads. They just said, well, we'll go this general direction. And they wind up in Palestine just before Palestine is made into Israel, to its own state. And he has the British escort him through the blockade to get into Palestine so he can take a flight to Paris. While he's there, he writes to General Electric here in the United States and says, hey, I'd like a job. Nothing. Never heard back from him. So he flies out, goes to Pennsylvania, walks into uh, General Dynamics and says, or General Dynamics, uh, uh, General Electrics and says, I'd like a job. And they hire him on the spot. They said, we never hire anybody on the spot. We'll hire you on the spot. He winds up in their engine program, their jet engine program as a junior engineer. One day at lunch, he just happens to walk into a test cell where they were having problems with the aircraft or with this engine they were supposed to give to the Air Force. 
And he just happened to notice this one measurement error, and he solved the backlog. He took care of the problem just because he was in the right place at the right time. And so he's promoted. Now he's in charge of that unit. He, one of his jobs was uh, to develop and, and improve engines. And so this would be really nerdy Air Force technical stuff, but he was the guy that invented the, uh, the blades, you know, those blades that you see in the engine. They're usually fixed, so they can't move. So what you do is you, you calculate how much pressure those are going to generate at certain altitude. This is the operating altitude. And so we'll get the right airflow through. It's not as good below or above. Well, he said, what if we could move those vanes? Just rotate them a little bit. And all the engineers said, that's impossible. So he went ahead and did it. And he was commissioned to develop this one engine, which turned into what we call the J-79, one of the most successful engines in the 1960s and 70s. It flew in just a whole ton of stuff. By the end of his career, he was in charge of the engine, the entire engine department for General Electric. And, and then he retired. And that's why he says his, his subtitle on this is, just lucky, I guess. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time repeatedly, over and over and over again. And so as I'm reading it, and I hear him say that, just lucky, I guess, I always picture him with a little wink in his eye, like, yeah, you know. Um, I don't know what his spiritual condition is. I couldn't find it. I don't know what he, was, uh, what he believed, but I think he knew there was something more going on. There was something more important happening. So this morning, when we look at the story of David, remember these last four chapters of 1 Samuel really are one giant story. And we're still in the middle of it, so we have to kind of remember the whole story. What's going on is David fled to the Philistines, and he, he was welcomed there. They sent him to Ziklag, and he's going out, and he's raiding the ancient enemies of Israel. But what he's telling the king is, yeah, I'm, I'm raiding in the south of Israel. And so they think he's invading his own people. Then we get interrupted in the story, and we find out, get that story about Saul going to the witch of Endor. And... That whole thing was just horrible. By the end, he's, he's told by this, this spiritual presence of Samuel that you're going to die tomorrow. You and your family, and Israel's going to lose, and it's going to go bad. And that was where we left him. Now we jump back to David. And the, the reason we have to kind of go back and look at that is because what I said with that first part of the story is, why is it that God would allow David to go with the Philistines, and why would he then deliver him later? And we're getting to the delivery today. What I talked about at that time was, why did he do that? Why would he do that for David? Why didn't he do that for Saul? Saul goes and consults a medium, and it's, it's nothing but bad news. It's just a bad story for him. Why would God do it for David and not for Saul? And the answer was grace. God's grace. God had affixed his love on David. He sealed him with his spirit, and that was what was going to happen. Saul was not given God's grace. He, it's not that he didn't earn it, it wasn't given to him. And so this morning, as we come to this next part of David's story, we're going to answer instead of the question of why did God deliver him, now we're going to look at the question of how did God deliver him. So that's what we're going to see is, is some God's sometimes silent providence. Um, God's only, his own name only comes up once in this chapter, and it's on the lips of a, a Gentile king as, a, as a, uh, an oath. But God is still very active. So we'll see that as we go through this. So it starts with, now the Philistines gathered their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring of Jezreel. Can you throw the map up? Just to give us an idea, situate us real quick. So these are the five cities of uh, the Philistines. That's the, where the five lords come from, uh, are these different cities. David is in Ziklag down here, but he came up to Gath to be with uh, Achish, and so they assemble their troops, and they move up here to Aphek. Now, they, they gather the troops and move there. That's where they're mustering, so that's, that's what's going on. Where they're going to head to is up here to Shunem, and uh, Saul, that's supposed to be a crown. You can't see it because it's too light. I should have made it darker. Uh, that's supposed to be a crown. That's where Saul is at, so that, that's the, the layout of the land as it stands right now. So the Israelites are encamped, at the springs in Jezreel, the Philistines, they're ready to go. They've assembled their, their, their invading army. And um, this, that map is the reason I said that the story about Saul and the witch of Endor was chronologically displaced. It was brought closer to David on purpose. Because what it says there at the beginning of chapter 28 is that the Philistines had assembled and encamped at Shunem. So that already has them up there, but they're still at this point down in Aphex. Does that make sense? They haven't headed north yet. They're still gathering their troops. 
So a little technical detail. Um, so now it says in verse 2, as the lords of the Philistines were passing by, by the hundreds and by the thousands, David and his men were in the rear with Achish. So what that, that's a technical term. Remember, hundreds and thousands doesn't mean exactly that number. These are units like squads and divisions or something. That's, that's how the term was used. So what's going on is you've got the five lords have brought their whole army together. And now the armies are passing in review. They're marching out. They're getting ready to head north into uh, Shunem. And they're, they're going by and they're being reviewed. And the lords are standing and watching as the, the troops go by. And then Achish comes with his men and David is among them. And that sets them off. That's a problem. They ask, what are these Hebrews doing there? You remember earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, I said Hebrews, when it's on the lips of the Philistines, is an insult. It's kind of a hiss. What are these Hebrews doing here? So it's, it's not a good thing. And they ask, is this not David, the servant of, the king of, or the servant of Saul, the king of Israel? Um, they're right. That is David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel. Um, but Achish interprets David differently. He thinks David has defected to him. And so he's, he says, well, this is David, man. He came to me. He's, he said earlier that he's a stench in the nostrils of Israel now because he's attacking him. Isn't this great? He's one of my guys. There's no way that he's going to be on Israel's side. He's going into battle because he's a good fighter and, and he's on our side now. The king also says, who has been with me now for days and years? That is entirely hyperbole. He hasn't been there. As a matter of fact, in chapter 27, it says, and the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So what is going on with Achish? Achish is having to negotiate with his commanders. He, he's having to try to convince them that it's okay David is there. Um, the commentary I was looking at was really kind of saying he's an ineffective leader. And, what, and I'm like, I don't know if he's ineffective or if he just realizes we have assembled all of these troops. We need to get them moving north. I don't have time to negotiate. I don't have time to convince you that this has got to happen. And so he just is trying to, trying to really quickly negotiate with them, help them understand what's going on, and they're not buying it. Isn't this David of whom they sang to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. They know who this guy is. They know what he's capable of. And so they want him gone. But, but Achish says, but, but he's deserted to me, and I have not found fault in him to this day. He, he's deserted to me. He's, he is the servant of Saul, but he's come to me. And, and now he, I got him roped in. He can't help but be on my side because he's already attacked Israel. So let's take him. But they're not going to stand for it. It's, it's not going to work. And so Achish just realizes, I think, that he doesn't have time to negotiate. It's, it's, it's down to the question of David and his 600 men or these five lords and their thousands and hundreds will go with the bigger army. And so he turns to David and he says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign. David, I'm sorry, you got to go home. Achish really wants him to be there. But isn't it interesting? He says, um, you have been honest. Has David been honest with Achish? Let me just read a section from chapter 28 to remind you. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gerashites, the Gizarites, and the Malachites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, and as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, oxen, donkeys, and camels, and the garments, and come to Achish. When Achish said, where have you been? Where have you made a raid today? David would say, I, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jamelahites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while that he lived in the land of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David. So has David been honest with Achish? No, he has not. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So you believe what you do know is the full picture. And so he doesn't know what David has actually been up to 
what he does know seems to paint a picture of David as he has turned against his people fully. This is great. He's, he's going to be my servant forever. He says, you should, you should march in and out with me in this campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me. So Achish, don't forget, liked David so much when he brought him in, he made him his own bodyguard. That's how much he trusted him, that he thought, I've got him. There's no way that he can, he can defect. He can, he can turn against me. Chapter 28, verse 2, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. He thinks he owns David. He's convinced of it. There's nothing that he's seen so far to convince him otherwise. So the intent is for David to accompany, accompany Achish into battle, probably stay with him in the fight, guard him, and protect him. That, that was Achish's plan. But that's not to be. Verse 7, so now go back go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Um, again, Achish is not a leader if nobody's willing to follow him. And followers will follow as long as they believe you have their best interests at heart and the, and the, the lords of the Philistines don't think David is the best bet. So Achish just says, David, you gotta go home. Um, sorry. So then David says, to Achish. This is his response, his, his reply. But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from this day until the, uh, from this, from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight the enemies of my Lord and King? What have I done? <laughs> Just, it sounds coy, but it's, it's a very David thing to say. David has said it repeatedly. That's a David phrase. Uh, when he visited his brothers before he fought uh, Goliath, his older brother got on him and he said, what have I done? When uh, Jonathan came to him and said, hey, my dad is really intent on killing you, he said, what have I done? And when he stole Saul's um, spear and water jug, he yelled from the other side of the valley, Saul, what have I done? So that, like I said, that's a very David thing to say. And it's not found on the lips of anybody else. This is, seems to be very authentic recounting of what David actually did. But it's a loaded question. What have I done? I have done nothing as far as, you know. Um, so I should go with you. What is your, uh, and then he says, what, your, uh, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Loaded statement. There's a lot there. Um, we don't know what David's ultimate plan here is. Was he actually going to fight on the side of the Philistines against the Israelites? Does that seem like what David would do from what we've heard of him, does that seem like he would do something like that? He had the opportunity to kill Saul twice and wouldn't do it. It doesn't seem like it's in his heart, it's his, not in his best interest to actually go and fight the Israelites. So what does he mean when he says, um, my king, or my lord the king? Well, Achish naturally assumes he means him. You're talking about me, I'm your king, I'm your lord. What David might mean is something very different. He might mean, I'm going to fight against the enemies of my Lord and King Saul. But he leaves it kind of open. It's unclear what's, what's going on. The reason I say that is because that phrase, my Lord and King, or versions of it, David says repeatedly to Saul. It, it, it refers to Saul almost every single time, over and over again. He, he's talking about Saul. So the idea here could be David's going to enter the fight He's going to go with Achish and stay in the rear. He's not going to be out on the front lines. And at the right moment, he's probably going to turn on Achish and kill him. That's, that's what my guess is. We will never know because it didn't happen. We didn't get to find out what his plan was. So perhaps that was it. Eh, we'll see. So then Achish again answers David, and he says, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of the Lord. He uses a Hebrew phrase to describe David's innocence. That's the third time he has proclaimed his innocence. So verse 11, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David heads back to Ziklag. We'll find out next week why that was really a good thing to happen to him. Um, but the Philistine army then begins trekking north, heading towards Saul. So isn't it lucky that Achish so fully trusted David that he protected him? Didn't, didn't destroy him. Remember last time he went to Achish, it may have been a different Achish, he went there, he had to act insane because the king was going to kill him, because everybody was against him. Isn't it fortunate that this time he goes and the king just falls in love with him and keeps him? 
And isn't it lucky that the Philistine lords distrusted David enough to say, you can't go into battle with us, but not enough to decide that it was better to kill him on the spot. Isn't that fortunate? Isn't that neat how that works out? And isn't it fortunate, we'll find out next week, that David returned to Ziklag in time to find out that he could still rescue his, his um, family. The, the city had been raided. Um, isn't that just lucky? Uh, isn't it lucky, I guess, to quote the book? Um, when you start stacking up circumstances and, and things like this, it becomes unlikely that something's going to happen. It, becomes un, it just becomes more and more unlikely when it, this has to happen and this has to happen. And the an, standard answer is, yeah, but those things did happen because the event happened, so it must have lined up like that. So it's, it's kind of like, have you ever heard of a pachinko machine? So can you put the pachinko machine up there? If you haven't heard about this, it's got a bunch of pins in this, this tray. And you launch these little BBs, and they go up to the top, and then they fall down, bouncing off these pins, and they wind up in different spots, and you get different points for things. And every time I watch one of those, I just think of the, all, the chaos of what's going on. Because that, that BB has to come up, and it's going to hit a pin, and there's a bunch of variables that go into which way is it going to fall off of that pin, or is it going to bounce up and go to the next pin up, or is it going to go to the left or to the right, or whatever. And somehow, eventually, the, the BBs fall to the bottom, and they wind up in the little containers, and you get points for you know, getting the good ones. So theoretically, theoretically, it's possible to launch, put one in and launch one of them and have it go up and fall down and zigzag and drop and go into the big jackpot in the center. That's theoretically possible. Um, but it's highly unlikely. So when you play pachinko, you don't drop one at a time. You launch hundreds of them, and they all just kind of bounce off each other and go all the way down, and they, they land where they're going to land. Isn't it fortunate that one lands in the jackpot? It just it seems improbable. It, it, what would happen if you launched one, and it went to the jackpot, and then you launched one, and it went to the jackpot, and you launched one, and you did that 100,000 million times, and it kept going in the jackpot? Would that just be random chance? Something's going on. You're going to say there's something wrong with this machine. Somebody's rigged it or something. You just, you don't see things line up like that. So now let's back to David for a second. Any one human being's thought process, any one person in that story making a decision is like 400 billion of those pachinko machines all hitting the jackpot at the same time. There's so many things going on. Human beings are so complex that each person making a decision is, their decision process is that complicated. They could be in a number of results. And so now you, you take David making his decision, and David's men making their decisions, and then you take Achish making his decision, and then the, the lords, and you multiply these together, and you raise them to the power of whatever it is, and, and you wind up with so many zeros, it kind of comes out to, yeah, this is highly unlikely. It didn't just accidentally happen. Something is going on. That, that, that's the point of this. It's not just lucky, I guess. Um, it works out so perfectly, so right, that something had to be going on. And that's why I said it was grace that God used to deliver David from having to attack Israel, going into that battle. And, and when you think about it, why would God protect David from that battle? One, so he doesn't have to pretend or even really attack Israel. Two, because when Saul dies, David is going to be nowhere around. Nobody will be able to say, Saul's servant rose up and slew him. David is on the opposite end of the country. He's, he's in the very far, furthest away that's possible when Saul dies. It's not just accidental. The Lord has this planned out. He's, he's got these purposes going on. And so when we're in the middle of things, when things are going on and we don't understand what's happening, it can feel like that pachinko machine, like we're one of the balls bouncing around and, and there's nobody really in control. It's just random bouncing off each other and where we're going to land in the end. Um, it can feel like that. And, and it, maybe David is feeling like that now. This is not the plan. The plan was, and now I'm going this way, and I don't understand why. When we're in the middle of those things, we can't always tell. We can't know what's going on unless God sends us a prophet in the middle to announce it. So think of, for example, Jeremiah. He's in Jerusalem. The siege engines are stacked. The, the, uh, the, the um, Babylonians are, are surrounded the city. And you've got Jeremiah in the middle of the city saying, this is why this is happening. Thus saith the Lord, lay down your arms and go out to him. 
If it wasn't for Jeremiah, they would think it was just a battle, and, and who knows, maybe we can win, maybe we can't. But, but God speaks in the middle of that chaos. And that's important, because what that means is God is not part of the chaos. He's not lost in the chaos. He knows what's going on, because he can speak and announce how things will come out. So with David, David is in the middle of this chaos. He's, he was going to have to go fight Israel or pretend to fight Israel, and, and you know, what's happening? How could he remain a man of integrity and courage and keep going? Well, he had a promise. Remember chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, arise and anoint him, David, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David, in that moment, had this promise, you will one day be king of Israel. This will happen. So as he's going through all of these things, and, and Saul's trying to kill him, and, and he has to flee to the Philistines and all of that, he's got this assurance. David, whatever happens, whichever way that pachinko ball goes, you're going to wind up as king of Israel. That's his confidence. That's his hope. Is he has this promise, you will make it. You're the anointed king of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean David just kind of kicked back and went, hey, whatever, you know, nothing can happen to me. He's still running from, from Saul. He's still got some responsibility in that, but he's got the assurance that the Lord is on his side in this. So God works all things together for David for his coronation. That's what God is doing. That's where he's leading him, including the free decisions of all the people involved. God did not have to coerce Achish, bend his arm and say, you're going to trust David or I'm going to snap your arm off. The, the, the outcome, just the way David carried himself, David was a very magnetic person to begin with, and Achish was enamored of him, just overwhelmed with what a great fighter he is, what a great leader, he's, he's got it all together. The lords of the Philistines, God didn't have to go force them to march up and say, no, no, David, even though they're going, but boy, he would be great on our side. They, did, they freely decided they didn't want David there. So Dave, God is able to work in the midst of all of these chaotic things, all of these weird decisions that all these human beings have to make, and God is orchestrating all these things towards his end. And I, I get that idea from Proverbs 21. The, heart, uh, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the Lord can direct this, the king's heart. He's not forcing the king. He's not dragging him out and making him do something. He's directing his heart. What do you want? This is what you want. This is what's going on. So as David is preparing, the, the throne is much closer to him now than it has been so far. It's the Lord who's guiding him there and leading him through the free actions of free human beings, making decisions that seem right and logical at the time. They're heading in that direction. Now, since we're talking about odds, since we're talking about pachinko machines, um, what are the odds of this happening? 10 to a bunch of zeros, 10 to one times a bunch of, or 10 times a bunch of zeros. There's, it's really improbable it's going to happen. What's the odds of it happening twice? What's the odds of it happening twice a thousand years apart? Do you get the idea? You don't, you don't you know, have the chances and go, well, it's 100,000, now it's 200,000 to one. It gets infinitely more complicated. There's so many more variables to add in. But this same scenario pretty much happened before, or happened again, a thousand years later. Samuel, was anointed, Samuel anointed David to be king, but he didn't immediately ascend to the throne, did he? The Magi worshipped the newborn king, but he didn't immediately ascend to the throne. He, it took years. David was persecuted by Saul, and an assembled group of, uh, and um, David was persecuted by Saul, and he assembled a group of misfits. Do you remember that first group that he had? They were in distress, they were in debt, they were, they were worn out, that kind of thing. Jesus is persecuted by the leaders of Israel, and he gathers a group of disciples, all the wrong people. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, all the, the, the wrong kind of folks, prostitutes. I mean, he, he gathered all the wrong people. David fled from his people to a Gentile ruler. He, he said, Israel, or, uh, Saul is going to get me, I have to leave Israel, and he flees to a, a Gentile ruler. Jesus, however, was handed over by his people to a Gentile ruler. He was put in the hands of Pilate. Achish three times announces David's innocence. Pilate 
three times announced Jesus' innocence. Luke 23, verses 4, 14 and 15, and 22. Three times he said, there is nothing in this man. I find nothing in this man. David was sent away from the Gentile ruler, and he went out and he rescued his people from the nations. The Amalekites had raided Ziklag. David goes out. He leads a war. He brings his people back in. Jesus was sent out beside the city to die, and then his disciples, uh, he sends his disciples to go and gather his people from the nations, and his promise is, lo, I am with you until the very end of the age. So it's improbable that it would happen to, to David. It's really improbable that it would happen again here. It, it seems unlikely that this would go on. Well, just, come on, Tim, it's just a coincidence. It just happened out that way. It just lined up like that. Well, the people closest to the events of Jesus' life didn't read it that way. They didn't think, wow, what a great coincidence. At Pentecost, when Peter is preaching, he said, Men of Israel, hear my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did that happen? It was due to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. And then later when Peter and John are arrested and then we're finally released in chapter 4, the disciples gather and pray, and this is how they pray. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever they wanted, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They did freely what they wanted to do, and it was exactly what God intended to take place. It's only after the events that the disciples could see that. Do you remember Peter in the middle of the events? overwhelmed. What is going on? Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to rise to the throne. He was supposed to kick out the Romans. And look it, they got him arrested. Well, aren't you one of his? Never knew the man. He denied him. He couldn't in the middle of it, in the middle of the chaos, when that pachinko ball's rattling around the pins, he couldn't know what was going on. But later he could look back and go, that was all according to God's perfect plan. That was exactly what God intended to happen. And what that did is that gave Peter confidence. He, he thought if, if Jesus could be offered up according to God's plan and God could bring the good of his resurrection out of it, then God is in charge of my life too and he can do whatever he wants. Unless he had a prophet come and tell him in the middle, he wouldn't understand. And even when Jesus told him, Peter, this is what's going to happen, he still didn't understand. It's hard for us in the middle. So as we're going through life, as, as we're stumbling through and we're wondering what comes next and which way do I go and how do I make this right decision, what we have to keep in mind is we have certain promises from God, certain things that he's reminded us. He's, he's, he's told us again and again that he will be with us. Jesus promised, I will be with you to the end of the age. And yet Jesus is the same man who hung on a cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the middle of it, it's hard. It's, it's human to react hardly. It's, it's, rea it's human to act frightened. You're a fool if you're not frightened. Fear is not a bad thing. It can save your life sometimes. But what we have to do is in the middle of that, remember what God's promised. So Jesus could call out, why have you forsaken me? And then he could look to the thief on his side and say, today you will be with me in paradise. How can you hold those two realities together? Because he trusted the promise. I feel forsaken. I feel forsaken. And yet I know what lays ahead of me. The glory that awaits me is there. And so Jesus, what promises do we have? What things do we have as we stumble through life, as we try to make the right decisions, as we wrestle through all of this? Well, Jesus, Jesus promised us that he would be with us till the end of the age. So even when he feels vacant, even when he feels absent, he's promised you, I am with you to the very end of the age. The prophets again and again tell um, the story about the nations coming into Israel to worship Israel's God. They say, I'm going to grab the hand of a Jew and say, lead me up and show me how to worship. That's a promise made in the, in the, um, in the prophets over and over again. David, later on in his life, is told, you will have a son who will sit on the throne forever. He will never stop reigning. 
Abraham was promised that he would be a blessing to the world, that his seed would bless the nations, that the nations would bless themselves by the name of Abraham. That that was a promise that he made. Here's an important one that applies very much right now. Noah was promised that God would not destroy the earth by a flood again. So we need that right now because it seems like he's working on it. But what he's talking about, he made a covenant with the entire creation. He said, I'm not going to destroy the world with a flood because I've got purposes. Noah, I want you to go out and fill the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the, fill the whole world and I'm not going to destroy it. That, that was his promise. Eve was promised right after the fall, right after her and Adam eat the fruit that they've been forbidden. Eve is promised your offspring, your seed, the one that comes from you will be wounded, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And so while we're in the middle of the chaos, while we're in the middle of everything that's going on, all the unknowns, all the things we can't see and understand, we have this sure, steady promise that leads us into the future that says, God's not going to end it now. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to reign. He's going to rule over the nations. The nations will gather and they will come in and they will worship the true and living God. And we've been given the commission, go and call them. Ziklag's been raided by the Amalekites. Go out and get them and bring them back in. The world has been raided by sin. Go out and get them and bring them back in. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. That's the tremendous promise. So that's how we can hang on in the middle of this. How did God deliver David? By his sovereignty. And it's not mentioned at all. He doesn't doesn't have a role in this. He's only mentioned by name. And yet when you look, it's a silent providence. It's a silent sovereignty. He's working behind the scenes. The book of um, Esther, people complain, God is not in the book of Esther. Oh, he's all over the book of Esther. He's just not on the stage. He's not in a starring role. But it's another one of those, isn't it convenient that? Isn't it handy that? This is God working behind the scenes where he often, most often works is behind the scenes. We don't see him out front. But we have his sure and steady promises. And so as David goes forward, as he's going to go rescue his family, as he's going to go, unbeknownst to him, be so far away from Saul's death that he can eventually ascend to the throne, honestly, with clean hands. He, ha- he does that because he has God's promise of what God is going to do for him. We have that promise. We have a promise to us that we will be secure, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he is working everything together for our good and for his glory. And so those are the promises that we have, that we'll hang on to. Isn't it lucky that it worked out that way? No, it's not. It's we, we trust in a good and a loving God. That's what's so fortunate about it. So let's pray to him. Uh, Lord, give us the faith to remember the promises, to trust in them, to call on your name, and Lord, to make decisions not in light of what the world has to say or how the world would necessarily do things, but Lord, help us to be supernatural in our thinking and make decisions based on the promises and the reality of who God is, the fact that you are working in this world and in our lives. Lord, help us to make, prom- or make decisions and choices in light of the fact that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. That, Lord, we're not operating in a purely mechanical universe, but a universe that's mechanical and supernatural at the same time. Lord, may we trust in you more. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please stand.
I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. I could be safe, I could be safe here in your arms and never leave home. Never let these walls down where you have called me higher. You have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. Where you lead me. I could just sit, I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, hope to feel your presence. I could just say, I could just say right where I am and hope to feel you, hope to feel something again. To who I am and never let you change me from the inside. I could be safe, oh, I could be safe here in your arms and never leave home. Never let these walls down, but you have called me higher, you have called me deeper. I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. Called me higher, you have called me deeper. I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. Where you lead me, I will be yours. I will be yours for all my life. I will be yours. Oh, I will be yours for all my life. be yours, oh, I will be yours for all my life, so let your mercy, I will be yours, oh, I will be yours for all my life, so let your mercy light the path before me, but you have called me higher, you have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. me higher, you have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper, I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. you to go ahead and get your communication card out from the seat in front of you and let us know if you have any questions or concerns or how can we can pray for you because we live in a supernatural world prayer works but not because of us it's because of who we pray to so uh, if you could do that while we're doing that we'll make a couple of uh, announcements uh, so Joel and team thank you guys for braving the raging waters and the howling wind and joining us we're gonna have a potluck afterwards so you're f invited to come and eat food Eat our food, please. Um, so thanks, you guys. And thank you all for coming out. It was dicey for a while there. Um, so depending on weather, but it's looking pretty good so far, we're going to do our potluck. And then after that, if you've signed up for it, we're going to go to an escape room and escape. 
from the room. Hopefully it's un not underwater. I don't think that's part of the deal, but um, that's what's going to happen. So if you're going to the potluck and not going to the escape room, could we ask you to please stick around and help clean up? Because some of us have got to jet out at about 2.20 so we can get over to the escape room in time to get started. So some of us are just going to abandon you and go have fun. But this is your opportunity to practice Christ-like service and just, you know, extend grace to others and, and do that. So that's, that's our big ask. Um, Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Bravery, we're going to do our taproom theology talk. And we're going to discuss a theology of technology. Um, what's going on with everybody walking around like this with their face stuck in a screen? How, what, how does that work? What's a Christian approach to those kind of things? So 7 p.m. bravery on Tuesday. And I mentioned last week uh, Matthew Smith concert for October. We're, we're probably going to cancel that. That looks like it's a den deal. Um, losing five air conditioning units was kind of a big hit. And... Um, the other church that was involved is, is having budget constraints as well. So Matthew understood. I'm bummed, but, you know, we'll have to make it. So am I forgetting anything? Oh, the Zoom folks, Zoomers, yeah. Hey, our live stream folks, um, if you would please stick around after the service is over. What we want to try to do is get you all on camera and put you up on the screen so you can all wave goodbye to the races. Um, we'll have to see how we do that, but... In theory, it'll work. So if we could ask you to just hang on for a little bit, um, and this is the time to get out of your pajamas and put a shirt on so you look you know, presentable. Um, so with that, ask the guys to go ahead and pass the baskets. We'll gather your communication cards, and if you have an offering to the Lord, we'll receive it at that time as well. you to rise for our benediction. This comes from Isaiah chapter 49. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Amen.